The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Doing Better Under Pressure in Prostate Cancer, Key Evidence and Real-World Care Strategies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YRR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Uh, good evening and uh, welcome to Doing Better Under Pressure in Prostate Cancer, Key uh, Evidence and Real-World Care Strategies. I'm Rob Dreiser from the University of Virginia. I am joined by three internationally known prostate cancer experts, Dr. Neil Shore, Dr. Alicia Morgans, and Dr. Matthew Smith. So we're going to be talking about a lot of things, and these are obviously things that, um, from a clinician's perspective, are things that we take into account. Prostate cancer is one of a, a very unusual solid tumor in that, unfortunately, for reasons that we don't have time to talk about tonight, there's a lot of data, a lot of things that we do, but a lot of missing data in terms of how we make decisions optimally. So we've had to, over the years, figure out clinical factors uh, and a multitude of other things that help us uh, derive decisions to help our patients. Uh, zero prostate cancer is an outstanding source of information, um, reliable source of information for your patients uh, with resources to support them. This is the website. So our goals, uh, we're going to try to go through a fair amount of um, systemic therapy options for prostate cancer and try to have at least brief conversations about how we make decisions when there is not uh, definitive evidence about what to do and talk about uh, a range of some things that are maybe on the horizon. So this is also a little bit of a game show. It's, um, these are the rules. Um, faculty contestants who answer each of the questions that will come up will get 100 points. If you uh, incorrectly answer, you'll lose 100 points. Um, Dr. Shore may lose 125 points just because he's, he's that kind of guy. We have higher expectations for him. Um, if the first person who answers is wrong, we go down and have the other panelists have at it. So here's our first challenge. What year did Dr. Charles Huggin win the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his work in hormonal treatment for prostate cancer? And? That would be 1966, Alex. That is correct. Next, what year was PSA first approved by the FDA? And the answer is? I'm going to say 1982. That's not correct. Dr. Smith. Nin 1986. That is correct. All right, we're off to a good start here. All right, so for our first discussion, and I think we now know that uh, Dr. Shore is, well, he's at zero, but there's a possibility of, of his uh, score shrinking further unless he comes up with a really good talk here. So, doctor. Well, I think I'm gonna protest that last uh, answer, uh, bring that back to the judges. Anyway, great to see everybody. Thank you, Dr. Dreiser, it's a pleasure. Uh, and I'm gonna be in charge here to talk about localized prostate cancer and biochemical recurrence. Great presentations today here at ASCO GU 2024. So, a lot of interesting, fascinating stuff. High-risk localized disease, you know, why do we focus on it? Well, I mean, a big reason is that second bullet at the bottom, 20 to 40%, some would even argue 20 to 50% of patients 
who undergo active treatment, radiation therapy or radical prostatectomy, get biochemical recurrence, and that's basically then foreshadows the development ultimately of metastatic disease, depending upon your treatment strategy. Um, some of the high-risk features, and, and you see in the 15-year prostate cancer-specific mortality, high PSAs, high-grade group where we've moved to ISUP, certainly the fours and fives in, in, in the grade group classification, uh, palpable uh, uh, disease with DRE, uh, margin positivity. So these are the things that we need to be mindful of. Uh, I mentioned the issue regarding those who fail that, that be, ultimately develop BCR, and we look at histopathology, we certainly want to look at the doubling time. Doubling time is extremely important. We'll talk more about that. But, you know, up until recently when we have the Embark data, we had a paucity of level one evidence uh, for what to do. You know, ADT, continuous intermittent, when to start. We had a lot of different studies that were out there. So um, what we do know is that we've had a lot of very impressive data from uh, androgen receptor signaling inhibitor drugs, whether it's the uh, ARPIs or the androgen biosynthesis inhibitors uh, from MCRPC to NMCRPC to MHSPC that show that no longer monotherapy ADT is the way to go. So combining is key. It's a busy slide here. I'm going to just kind of, you can read through it a bit here, but it's an important stampede data that came out and it's now part of the guidelines. Uh, and essentially, as you read through it and look through the different uh, analyses, it's the takeaway at the bottom now. So for patients with high-risk disease, high-grade group, PS, elevated PSAs, two years of adding abiraterone to ADT and radiation therapy uh, improved uh, 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 progression and improved survival. That really changed everything. So why is that important? It's important because now we have these trials. It's not an exhaustive list, but they're all pretty important. Just look at the, the second and third. Enzarad and Atlas are essentially trying to recapitulate what Stampede did. Enzarad, 800 patients, fully accrued, is looking at the high-risk population, uh, does adding Enza to ADT in the, in the RT population. Again, these are RT patients, EBRT. Um, versus a non-steroidal, uh, does it make a difference? Atlas, uh, somewhat similar also, but uh, with an ARPI, but using apalutamide. Uh, and so this will be really, really interesting. Um, and, and so th this will augment ultimately, if there's a positive readout, what we found in Stampede. And similarly, Dasal High Cap is likewise a similar study now with ADT uh, and darolutamide. Now the top and the bottom, the Proteus, is a 2,000 patient study looking at six months of neoadjuvant, six months of adjuvant, ADT, apalutamide, neoadjuvant, adjuvant in the RP setting. So very, very interesting as well. We've never had any data that really substantiated that uh, to use neoadjuvant or adjuvant. We have actually a, a 100 patient open label study that we just concluded and we're hoping to get a presentation uh, for, for that high-risk patients, RP, very high-risk patients, who went on to 12 months of ADT and APA. So we'll hopefully be presenting that this, this spring. And Aristep is a really interesting study. Let me just show you this. This really shows you how, uh, which I'm going to pre present Embark in a second, but because of PSMA PET imaging, here's a trial that's looking at patients with high-risk BCR, 
um, rapid PSA doubling times, in this case, a doubling time of less than 12 months, uh, negative conventional imaging, much like in the Embark trial, except we use there a doubling time of less than nine months, but essentially here a one-to-one -one randomization of ADT darolutamide versus ADT and placebo. Patients will be allowed to get SBRT after enrollment in the study. So um, we had a TIPS presentation on that at ASCO here. So my pleasure to quickly talk to you about the Embark. You know, uh, really proud to be a co-PI on this with my good friend and colleague, Steve Friedland, and all the investigators. Uh, essentially a global trial, over 1,000 patients, started at eight plus years ago. And we took uh, an enriched population, PSA doubling time, less than nine months. <clears throat> you see the criteria for whether or not you could enter if you had prior hormonal therapy. It had to be eugonadal. You had failed either radical prostatectomy radiation therapy, or a combination of both of those. A three-arm trial. <clears throat> the first two arms were blinded. So you're blinded to receive ENZA plus LHRHQ3 month, blinded to placebo LHRHQ3 month, and then the unblinded was you got 160 milligram, the approved dose of ENZA, enzalutamide, um, because it's indication across the spectrum of prostate cancer. We weren't going to give patients an IM uh, placebo injection. A, a holding holiday period at the end of nine months or 36 weeks if you nadir to less than 0.2. We presented that data today at ASCO-GU in the monotherapy uh, versus the LHRH arm alone. We also had a poster on the combination versus LHRH alone. Bottom line, a successful trial. Here's the KM. And at the five-year mark, you see the difference in MFS, metastasis-free survival. Most of these were, uh, were uh, points of radiographic progression. We're following overall survival. It's trending positively, positively, but the data still not reached statistical significance. We'll probably have something for you sometime in mid-late 2025. Um, what can see here, the benefit of a combination over luprolide. So Enzo LHRH with a, a hazard ratio here of uh, basically um, a 0 0.59. Uh, time to progression, time to next antineoplastic te therapy, and also CRPC, clearly all showing that combination bested LHRH alone and monotherapy bested LHRH uh, alone. Here's the, uh, the KM for the Enza monotherapy. And so this is the first time now you see avoidance of T suppression uh, 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 besting LHRH, our traditional go-to um, thanks to the work of Huggins and Hodgins and that Nobel Prize in 1966. Okay. You, um, you don't get more points. Did I get some credit, extra no, points? No, right? not for working it in. Sorry. All right. So the safety profile, important to recognize that, you know, there are differences, uh, you know, in, in when you combine versus LHRH alone or a straightforward ADT therapy. Uh, but, but overall, the ENZA combination or the ENZA monotherapy, it, it, it improved MFS compared to LHRH alone. And we presented data at ESMO uh, 2023 this year. We have a, uh, a, a second New England paper in evidence on our uh, patient-reported outcomes. I would, I would steer you to that. It's a really nice paper. And, uh, and that came out literally uh, two days uh, apart from our, our New England paper on the Embark. And so because of this, really proud to be part of something that, you know, where clinical trial can change clinical practices. So in, in November 16th, FDA expanded the label indication for enzalutamide to now include non-metastatic castration-sensitive patients uh, with BCR, high-risk BCR. It's your judgment on the high-risk BCR and the label, but ultimately th this is th the data that's out there. So now 
rather than just picking an ADT, whether it's an agonist or antagonist, you have uh, a more full-throated opportunity for discussion of two different options for your patient. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Shore. Let me ask um, two questions with regards to sort of embarkedness. All right, so the first one is for the good Dr. Shore. So uh, a lot of discussion today about uh, gynecomastia, all right? So you're, you are an experienced uh, urologic oncologist. You've used benzalutamide for a long time. In this clinical setting, what do you do about the potential? How do you talk to patients about it? Do you prophylax? So it's a great question. We did not invoke any prophylaxis strategy for our patients uh, in, in, in the EMBARC trial. Uh, I've been involved in an, another large phase two study known as the ENACT, and we didn't do that either. I, I think that there's a, a lot of really good data to do prophylactic radiation one day, three days, uh, which is very effective um, in preventing uh, gynecomastia, potentially uh, some additional nipple discomfort, breast discomfort. There are aromatase inhibitor strategies. And there's even, you know, this may seem, you know, hard for some, but there, you can actually do um, a subareolar removal of, the, of the, the breast tissue. It's an outpatient procedure. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot we don't know, and I think there's a lot of opportunity. And I think that, uh, you know, gynecomastia is, is a real issue. Um, breast nipple tenderness is an issue. Uh, unopposed AR pathway inhibition, we, we saw this with high-dose bicalutamide, which is not approved in North America, but is approved in Europe. Um, but I think this is a, is, a, is a, it's a great question. I think there's a, a great opportunity to improve on, on that adverse event. May I ask first Dr. Morgan and Dr. Smith. So again, also in the session this morning, several of our colleagues referenced um, emerging concern about cardiovascular morbidity, which may be I don't want to use the word dramatically, but perhaps clinically meaningfully increased. Where do you stand on that? What do we know? Uh, how do we think about that in terms of risk benefit? Sure. So, I mean, I think that what we know most clearly is that this population of patients is a population that has, for the most part, 90% or so cardiovascular risk factors at a minimum, and maybe 20 to 30% of them actually may have cardiovascular disease, and that's walking in the doors to our clinic. So I do think that cardiovascular risk, because this is the main competing risk for death for our patients, is absolutely something that we should deal with. Now, the association with ADT, GNRH, GNRH agonist, antagonist, is one that's been really complex and one that I think there's a strong enough potential for association that, again, we should counsel patients um, and then when it comes to the AR signaling inhibitors, whether it's abiraterone, enzalutamide, um, or the others, I think there's also some data to suggest an association. And, and none of these really show the exact causal pathway, but we do know that the junior age agonist antagonists affect our cardiovascular risk factors and cardiometabolic system in a negative way. So at a minimum, we need to address reversible risk factors and, and also just educate our patients about these risks. So Dr. Smith, let me ask... You know, the issue about Embark in that the patients who achieved an undetectable PSA had a holiday. Do we know anything about duration? I mean, like, we, we know that for the impact on metabolic changes, even a short course of T-suppression impacts. How about cardiovascular risk 
with an ARSI? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. And there's some evidence that the, if, if to the extent that there is a causal association, it's an early effect. So like the transitions being on and off, it's not clear that it would actually be protective necessarily. But I really want to reinforce what Alicia said in that it's really, it's like a teachable moment, right? Like we think about this like black and white, like you had an event because you're on this drug, but in fact, these are very common events. And the majority of events that are going to occur are going to be because of what was brought to the table, as Alicia said. And uh, so it's an important opportunity to counsel patients about their cardiovascular disease risk. And I think even as a, generally, we don't do a very good, the, not oncologists specifically, but I don't think the community, uh, even primary care doesn't do all that good a job of screening uh, for cardiovascular disease. All right, uh, throughout uh, the presentation, we have some of these updates just to sort of highlight some of the stuff that's pre presented. Uh, it'll be obviously available to you in your slides. Here we go with the challenge. What was the percentage of patients with de novo metastatic disease in the charted phase three trial? Dr. Morgans. 66%. That is incorrect. I have no idea who's next. That Dr. Smith. Well, apparently it is Dr. Shore. Well, I got a one out of three chance here. You, you do. I'm going to say it was um, three, 73%. 73% is correct. Even though it took you a while. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's see. We, I think we have another question coming up. All right, which of the following is correct? The half-life of Enza is 2.2 days. Darlutamide, 20 hours. Apalutamide, 5.8 days. Abiraterone, 10 hours. Um, Dr. Shore. I'm going to say two. The half-life of darlutamide is 20 hours. That is correct. Can, can, I, can I actually ask a question? Who was writing these questions? I did. <laughs> I did it under duress. I protest all of these questions. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So, Dr. Morgans, please. Talk about treatment intensification. This I can do. Thank right. you. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about this. Now, you know, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer is a population that we absolutely recognize as one that has unmet needs. We cannot cure this entity. Um, at least as of today, uh, there's definitely interest in trying to cure, especially patients with oligometastatic hormone-sensitive disease. But the unmet needs are clear. We know that they can have poor clinical outcomes. We know that the, the presentation, whether it's recurrent or whether it's de novo, certainly affects how that patient is going to do over the long run, is really prognostic of that. Um, we also know that intensification of our treatments by adding something to androgen deprivation therapy can improve outcomes for our patients, in most cases, not only in survival and in pre preventing complications, but improving their quality of life. But we also know that in our communities, in our practices, we are underutilizing those intensification strategies. And so I applaud everyone in this room for taking the time to, to think about this, because I think it's those education moments where we can ensure that we're keeping this in mind and making a difference. There have been multiple studies, and they're listed here, that have demonstrated that ADT alone is the loser every single time when we're treating patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Whether we are combining ADT with radiation to the prostate in low-volume metastatic disease, like in Stampede at the top of this page, um, or whether we're using an AR signaling inhibitor and adding that to ADT, 
those combinations are always better in, in terms of improving overall survival when compared to ADT alone. I think our newest data on intensifying by using a combination of ADT and docetaxel and adding either darolutamide or abiraterone also demonstrate that if we are comparing versus ADT and docetaxel, which has been a standard of care since Charted came out many years ago, we can do even better. So what I think is really fascinating and important in the United States, at least, the guidelines have actually been updated such that unless there's a financial or comorbidity barrier, if patients are well enough to get ADT and docetaxel, we should be adding that additional AR pathway inhibitor to the regimen rather than simply doing ADT and docetaxel alone too. And that's that's one of our more recent updates. So as I said, ADT alone, no longer the standard of care. That was demonstrated in Titan, which was looking at the combination of ADT and apalutamide arches, which was ADT and enzalutamide, latitude as well, ADT and abiraterone. And each of these studies had some nuanced differences, but they were all metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer populations. And in every single one, we saw the ADT and placebo, or ADT alone, essentially, was the loser. So our newest data, as I said, has been really looking at triplets. This is ADT and docetaxel and the addition of an AR pathway inhibitor. PIECE1 was a, a bit of a complicated study done by our, our friends and colleagues in, uh, in France and some European areas. And they included patients in this study that all had de novo metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. We know that that type of prostate cancer is, is one that has generally a more aggressive disease biology, poor prognosis. In this study, patients could have high or low volume disease, but all de novo metastatic. And patients were randomized to what looks like a relatively complex forearm trial, which included standard of care, which at the, at the outset was ADT with or without docetaxel and became ADT docetaxel through the course of the study, um, versus that standard of care with abiraterone, the standard of care with radiation, or the standard of care with radiation and abiraterone. And they've given us analyses that have broken this up in different ways, often by combining two groups as the control and two groups as the intervention and kind of splitting apart these, these groups to try to help us make some conclusions. But the primary endpoints here are radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival. And here we can see that radiographic progression-free survival in PIECE1 was clearly prolonged in the blue line, which was the patients who received ADT, uh, docetaxel, with or without radiation, and abiraterone versus ADT and docetaxel alone. So adding abiraterone to that chemohormonal backbone clearly improved radiographic progression-free survival. And this was pretty indisputable. We also saw that there was an improvement in the overall survival uh, of the overall population when we added abiraterone to the standard of care backbone that was with or without docetaxel versus that standard of care without abiraterone on the left. And if we look only in those patients who received docetaxel, so ADT and docetaxel population for all, adding abiraterone also improved overall survival. I think we don't show the curves here, but this was most pronounced among patients who had high volume disease and the low volume patients are actually um, not quite demonstrating any difference at this point in time that's statistically significant because that data remains immature and we will see further data cuts on piece one. Interestingly, as I said, radiation was also assessed in this forearm trial and some of the most recent data that we have on radiation looked at the low volume population 
uh, specifically to understand if radiation in a, uh, to the prostate, in addition to this intensified systemic therapy, could improve survival the way that it had in Stampede, as we saw earlier in Arm H. And what we can see on the left-hand side of this slide is that there's completely o complete overlap in overall survival in the low-volume patients where we previously saw radiation to the prostate improving survival in Stampede in this population. So this is something I think that raises questions. We'll continue to discuss this. Um, what it did show in this study is that time to serious GU event, so needing to have a catheter or percutaneous nephrostomy tubes or stenting, was actually prolonged when we did treat the prostate with radiation versus not treating the prostate with radiation. So this was in the overall population, including patients with high-volume metastatic disease. So there may still be some benefits. But this data, I think, from uh, ASCO this year was something, or last year, 2023, was something that I think really has us continuing the discussion here. Aresens is another phase three trial, of course, looking at the chemohormonal backbone with or without darolutamide in this instance. And this included patients with recurrent or de novo disease, um, and all, but all patients obviously with metastatic hormone sensitive disease. They could have high or low volume. Uh, and darolutamide was added to one arm here versus that ADT and six cycles of docetaxel as the as the backbone. Overall survival is the primary endpoint. And here we can see that adding darolutamide to chemohormonal therapy was improve, improved overall survival versus chemohormonal therapy on its own, highly statistically significant. And this has achieved a, a, a label or approval for darolutamide in this setting. And here we have the de novo uh, a de novo disease versus the recurrent disease demonstrating that in either setting, there seemed to be an improvement in overall survival, regardless of whether the disease was de novo or recurrent um, here. You can see that in the recurrent disease population was smaller. This did not reach statistical significance, but we can see the separation of curves. We also see that on the bottom, high-risk and low-risk patients did seem to benefit here when we added darolutamide to that chemohormonal backbone versus ADT docetaxel on its own. And high-volume disease on the upper left, um, clearly there was a benefit to adding darolutamide to ADT and docetaxel. Um, and low-volume disease, you can see, again, smaller numbers, not statistically significant difference. Again, this is not testing the addition of docetaxel, but really testing the addition of darolutamide. So relatively consistent benefit of adding darolutamide to ADT and docetaxel across subgroups. Um, so here, just to point out, um, there, is, there are multiple studies that are ongoing. Um, this is a, a phase two study called ARA-SEEK. Um, and this is a study, or ARASEC, as I should probably say. I believe that's what it is, right, Neil? This is your study. Sorry about that, ARASEC. Um, and this includes patients with metastatic disease. Um, and it's really interesting. It's an open-label study where darolutamide is being added to ADT. There's no docetaxel in this analysis. And they're using the historical control arm of the charted ADT alone study as the match or as the control arm for this single arm study. And they're using propensity score matching to really control for as many factors related to that population to make these control arm and the treatment arm as similar as possible in this non-randomized analysis. So I really think this will be interesting with a primary endpoint here of PFS, OS as a secondary endpoint, um, may expand the label or, or at least may expand our understanding of the use of ADT darolutamide as a, without docetaxel. Uh, you know, in general, we have to think about safety, of course, as we're choosing treatments for our patients. With our ADT and AR signaling inhibitors or AR pathway inhibitors, we have to think about um, monitoring, certainly with abiraterone, 
enzalutamide, we need to look for blood pressure elevation, abiraterone, edema, LFTs, hypokalemia. We always have to think about pill burden, co-pays. We have to think about enhancing or exacerbating our ADT side effects and bone health, cardiovascular disease, co cognitive changes, um, depression, anxiety. These are all things to think about. With our triplet therapy, we have to think about all of those things, plus chemotherapy, time at, 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 at getting treatment, the toxicities there, um, neutropenia, fatigue, um, neuropathy, all of these things. And, and I think that we do in our practices, but really important to think about them and talk with our patients about them. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Morgans. So if we have time, I want to talk about two things. But the first thing I want to ask is, and without necessarily reviewing the data, is I thought the piece one discussing at ASCO last year made a very important point. She pointed out that perhaps the reason we're not seeing overt survival benefit from the addition of radiotherapy in this setting is because our systemic therapies move the needle so well. So whether that's true or not, we haven't seen the survival benefit. The HORRID study is sort of quoted as a positive study. It wasn't a positive study. So in your clinical practice, we'll go down the line, Dr. Shore, uh, do you routinely ask your radiation oncology colleagues for your patients with, let's just say, de novo metastatic disease to add radiotherapy? Prostate, prostate pelvis, what's, what happens? Yeah, I, I, have, um, I have moved um, towards the, the notion of trying to be as multifaceted as possible in my MHSPC patients. Um, so yes, doublet, triplet therapy, you know, it's a rare exception to get monotherapy. And absolutely, yes, depending upon their level of voiding symptoms, if, if they have a really bulky prostate, I'll try to wait to get some gland volume reduction if they're like in near retention. Um, if they do need a TURP, some deobstructing procedure, I, I may consider that first. But as long as that's not on the table, I am almost invariably getting a radiation oncology consult for, for a localized treatment. I would say the same thing. Um, it does, just because you get a consult does not necessarily mean the patient will end up with radiation. So they, I don't, they I don't have, know about your radiation docs, but my radiation docs... Uh, <laughs> Pretty happy to treat people. Well, they definitely are happy to treat people, but I think that this data has made them think, and particularly when the prostate is big and they're having a lot of voiding symptoms, I think that there's a real reticence, obviously, to put them into retention. So they're, they're definitely thinking about that, giving the systemic therapy a chance to work before really kind of jumping on that. But it, I do think it makes the decision more difficult, but I would not want to withhold that treatment from a patient with low-volume disease in particular. It really depends on the anatomic distribution of the disease. So lower burden of distant metastases, big primary tumor, we're enthusiastic about prostate radiation. All right. So the other question I want to ask is, and this is not a new issue, but uh, perhaps my own recent clinical experience reminds me of it. So with the doublet and triplet therapies that we now see routinely, um, the emergence of neuroendocrine phenotype has, uh, you know, it's not a new thing. We, speak, we saw it when Abby and Enzo was first around. But, and again, it may just be um, I'm running in bad luck, but in the context of doublet and triplet therapy with the really nasty de novo patients that um, we all see, I've seen a lot more of this recently. What's your experience been and sort of briefly how do you approach it? We'll start with you, Dr. Smith. Um, I'm not sure it's been my experience. I wonder if it's a bias of like the patients who I would preferentially treat with triplet therapy are going to be the worst acting patients. So are more likely who begin with a less differentiated phenotype. So I wonder if some of that, it can, it's a humbling disease when it's really, when it's really bad, right? And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So I, 
I, I can't say that I think that there's a greater rate of transformation in neuroendocrine disease, at least not in my personal experience. We didn't, we didn't, I'm not sure how well we could have identified it at Harrison's, but, but we didn't seem to see that. Yeah, and most of the time, obviously, it's a clinical diagnosis. It's, a cl- it's, not, it, it's, it's just understood. behavior, right? Yeah, and I, I guess I'd say we, tr- we do our best to manage it, but I don't think any of us do a very good job of it because we don't have There's nothing therapies. really good to do. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Morgans? Yeah. I, I also don't necessarily think there's a change in the number of patients, but when patients progress after a triplet therapy, it, it, sometimes it's a lion and sometimes it's a lamb, but it's more often a lion. And I think that that's the opportunity for us to very quickly move into something else. And sometimes that's another chemotherapy, depending on what things look like. But it's not necessarily always neuroendocrine. But to your point, it is really important for us to make sure that we're not dealing with neuroendocrine consider a repeat biopsy and, and really under, understand from a pathologic perspective, not just from CTDNA, what you're dealing with. I would agree. And just only add, you know, these patients are the, t- the patients who just go very, very fast. And uh, oftentimes they're younger. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly the, the, it stresses the need for genomic profiling. If you haven't done it when they were MHSPC, now it's clearly the time when they're MCRPC. Thank you. All right, we're going to move on. Uh, again, just a little bit more data from Dr. Shore. He's been a very busy doctor. All right, next challenge. In the phase three Triton II trial, which was the breakdown of the therapy on the control arm? 38, oh, Dr. Smith. Uh, one dose of taxol, 38%. That is not right. <laughs> I'm going to let you steal, Alicia. No, no. Come on, Alicia, Alicia, Alicia. No, you you, you choose, and then I'll have a 50% chance Oh, okay. Oh, I see your strategy. Uh, Dr. Shore. Uh, I'm going to say uh, three, uh, 56%, 44%. Dr. Shore is correct. He's a good, he's a good he's guesser. He's really good. <laughs> he, he, he is. Next. All right, so Dr. Smith is going to talk to us about the ever-expanding world of PARP inhibitors. Yeah, absolutely. So PARP inhibitors have an established role in prostate cancer. This is a fine example of, you know, precision oncology. It's come to prostate cancer. And I'll spend a few minutes talking about newer data, looking at combination strategies with uh, AR pathway inhibitors plus PARP inhibitors. So here's a, a great summary slide showing the current approval status of the various commercially available PARP inhibitors. Uh, Olaparib and Rucaparib are approved as monotherapy and MCRPC. The approval of Olaparib is for patients with any HRR mutation. Rucaparib has a narrower label with only BRCA-mutated uh, patients. Uh, Olaparib, Niraparib, and Telazoparib are all approved in combination with, AR, with the, the respective AR pathway inhibitors as shown there. Um, There's also differences in the labeled indications in addition to having different partners for some of them. The FDA approval for Olaparib-Abbey and Niraparib-Abbey is only for patients with BRCA mutations. The approval of telazoparib-enzalutamide is a bit broader and that spans um, all HRR mutant MCRPC. Let's go over some of the evidence supporting these approvals. This is the design of the PROPEL trial. It's included kind of an all-comers first-line MCRPC trial, uh, patients um, with no prior abiraterone. Um, they were stratified by site of distant metastases, um, prior taxane for MHSPC, 
uh, and then randomized to Abby uh, plus placebo or Abby plus olaparib. And then analyses were done based on their um, biomarker testing. The primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free survival with a key secondary endpoint of overall survival. In the blue box is shown the results of the overall intent to treat uh, analysis. It met the primary endpoint with a significant improvement in RPFS with a hazard ratio of 0.66. Uh, most of the benefit appeared to be conferred in patients who had BRCA mutations or other HRR mutations. You see here the um, Kaplan-Meier curve is for patients with BRCA mutations showing this early and broad separation between the curves. Impressive, particularly impressive hazard ratio of 0.24. And based on the totality of this evidence, in May 2023, the FDA approved the combination, but only for patients with BRCA mutations and MCRPC. Uh, this is the final overall, anal overall survival analysis. This is the intent to treat population. There was a trend in favor of the combination hazard ratio 0.81, but didn't quite reach statistical significance in the ITT population. <clears throat> Magnitude was a study of a somewhat different design. So it was um, looked at patients first line MCRPC, um, short course of prior ABI was allowed. Um, it's a small difference and then similar stratification to the other trial. The key difference here though, is that patients had biomarker screening at baseline and then based on those results, we're enrolled into two different cohorts. Cohort one of patients with HRR mutations and cohort two are patients who are biomarker negative. So it's really like two parallel phase three trials. Cohort two was uh, ended early after an interim futility analysis showed no benefit of the combination. Um, and then cohort one continued on as planned to its completion. Um, this is the analysis uh, for the BRCA subgroup of the HRR-positive patients um, in the Kaplan-Meier curve, showing, again, early broad separation of the, of the curves. Hazard ratio here, 0.55, statistically significant compared to the control group. Um, and on the basis of these results, the FDA approved the fi a fixed-dose combination of a niraparib Abbey in August 2023 for patients with BRCA mutations. Uh, here's updated uh, analyses, um, uh, three-year update and final analysis for various time points. Overall survival uh, is shown there. Um, hazard ratio 0 0.66, uh, and there is um, benefit for time to symptomatic progression as well as time to cytotoxic chemotherapy. This is the design of the Talapro 2 study. It's more similar to Propel in that it included patients with MCRPC, sort of all comers. Um, they were stratified according to prior treatment and also, in this case, stratified specifically by DDR alterations of biomarker status at baseline, uh, randomized to either ENZA plus placebo or ENZA plus talazoparib with primary endpoints of RPFS key secondary endpoints, including overall survival. Uh, shown here is the PFS for patients uh, who are HRR deficient, so biomarker positive patients, uh, robust effect on uh, PFS, hazard ratio is 0.545, excuse me, highly statistically significant. And this is the overall survival in that same group, showing uh, 
an improvement in overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.69, although it didn't quite reach statistical significance at the time of this analysis. So there's a number of studies that are looking at expanding this combination approach to other settings. Uh, the phase three amplitude study will evaluate norepirib uh, and abiraterone in metastatic hormone sensitive disease. Um, Talapro-3 will evaluate that combination also in metastatic hormone sensitive disease. The details about the study design are shown here on the slide. Some comments about, um, I'm gonna just state a couple of things and get your feedback. All right, so here's the environment. All of these trials that we just looked at were primarily designed in a time frame where most patients did not get intensification, right? For the most part, none of these patients saw these age at ARI in the hormone-sensitive metastatic setting. So it was like back in the day when folks who treat a lot of prostate cancer would see MCRPC, we would offer Abbey or Enza, et cetera, right? All right. So the population there is different, perhaps. But yet, we know that, at least in the U.S., 60 70% of patients don't get intensified. That's another story about why that happens. How do we figure out what patients should receive these agents? I mean, obviously, there are concerns about overall survival, about the fact that maybe BRAC is driving much of what we see. How do we sort this out for, you know, what clinicians in the community have to look at this data and figure out how to incorporate it in their practice? Uh, Dr. Shore, why don't you just start with your thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, so you're so you're right. I mean, we, we're making some improvement in the decreasing the amount of patients who are getting monotherapy ADT. Um, I remember when Elizabeth Heath was the discussant um, at ASC, here at ASCO GU. I mean, she showed some great data on how uh, overwhelming, even before the triplet data came out that Matthew Smith presented on Aerosens, uh, despite so many great doublet studies, you know, in the U.S. Uh, and when, but with where accessibility isn't an issue, uh, model therapy was still ruling the day. I think we, we're, we're seeing improvement there. But the other thing that we're not seeing as much improvement as I'd like uh, is in our, our ability to test. And so we're not doing anywhere near the level of germline testing and tissue-based testing, looking for somatic alterations, whether it's through tissue or liquid-based testing. Because that will inform you if you have a a DDR, an HRR mutation, and you could avail yourself to uh, a, a, a PARP inhibitor, either as monotherapy or in combination. You know, the decision moving forward, if you've been on a doublet, which I think was the, the basis of your question is, well, you know, does it make a difference if you're on ADT Abbey versus um, ADT Enza, and then you find out that you have a mutation uh, whether it's BRAC or one of the nine gene panels in the U.S. In Europe, the EMA gave it an all-comers approval for Propel, very different from uh, what's been done at, 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 the, at the ODAC. So I'll stop with that. I'd love to hear what Drs. Morgan and Smith also think. Yeah, so I, um, yes, we, I mean, we acknowledge that this is, this is the case. I think, you know, we should be testing for these patients. If we don't test, we don't know that they have them. That includes germline testing and somatic testing. So we've got to do both of this. We'll see half of our mutations in each of these settings. Um, and really understanding that is, is critical. I think it's a no-brainer for patients who have been in the practice and now you see finally are progressing on ADT alone. 
And, you know, we inevitably will probably have some of these patients in our practice um, or patients maybe who are progressing on, you know, ADT long-term with radiation, which should be relatively few, but could happen with a BRCA patient. This is, these are poor, these patients have a poorer prognosis. I think if we have a patient who is on ADT and an AR signaling inhibitor, this is a challenge. And if it's a BRCA2 patient, maybe a BRCA1 patient, I think right now we don't have the data to say what to do. And you could have a conversation with that patient and say, I can add single agent, you know, choose a laparib, obviously, because recaparib is not really available at this point. But um, you could also, particularly if the patient was an ADT and abiraterone, think about switching that AR um, signaling inhibitor to enzalutamide and adding talazoparib. And I don't know what the right answer is. I do think that we need studies to figure this out. Um, but BRCA mutations have a poor prognosis. And for example, the BRCAWAY presentation today, that RPFS was incredible. So if we can get some of that, if that is a synergistic relationship as it appears to be, who knows what the truth and the reality is, then I would love to be able to capitalize for these patients who have a poor prognosis to begin with. So I agree we don't have the data. Until we do, I would not advocate for taking a patient on an ADT and an AR pathway inhibitor and switching them to a different combination. If they could bracamutane, I would stop their AR pathway inhibitor and give them a laparib monotherapy or one or the other, or recaparib monotherapy. All right. So we have a question. So um, relatively briefly, all three of you, genetic testing, tell us your paradigm, standard of care. At uh, presentation, you do what? So metastatic presentation, Dr. Shore, you obtain? Okay and somatic tissue preferably. Uh, Will you do an extra biopsy to get that or do CT DNA for your somatic? I'll do archival and if it's, uh, it doesn't seem like it's deteriorated or it's in excess or it's accessible. If it's not and I have a, a, a proper metastatic tumor, I go to my interventional radiologist and I do metastasis directed. And typically now concomitantly, I'll pair that just for turnaround time with CT DNA. So germline immediately, try to do same day. There's also the Promise Prostate Cancer Registry, which I actually send a lot of patients to. It's a saliva-based test that's free. Patients sign up, and um, the data can go to the treating oncologist. Yes, and they get, they get that test to their home, so they can do it on their own. Um, no cost. So I, I do a lot of that, but I definitely get germline testing. And then I do the same with, I try to use archival tissue. Um, it is not... A majority of patients, I do have trouble getting new biopsies, and so I will use CT DNA if I have to. We do a lot of CT DNA and, and offer germline. But you're going to do that at initial metastatic presentation? At initial metastatic, so I'm meeting someone with de novo metastatic disease. We do commercial CT DNA and follow-up germline testing. All right. We're going to move on. Some more updates, including the Brackaway study that Dr. Morgan's referred to. Uh, small study, but at least provocative at if, if some level? Okay, now we go. All right, which of the following dates is the correct FDA approval of a radiopharmaceutical? Samarium, strontium, rhenium, severium? Severium? Sorry. <laughs> Doctor? I'm going to say samarium 1990. That would be wrong. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Morgans, go ahead. Strontium, 1993? That is correct, yeah. Nailed it. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Morgan's uh, uh, 
clear, cleverly figured out that severium was uh, yeah. one of my hallucinations. <laughs> but I kind of liked it. Anyway. All right, so we're going to talk just a little bit about um, PSMA-targeted radioligand therapeutics. Um, so there have been radiopharmaceuticals around for a really long time. Uh, I actually gave a patient uh, phosphorus-32. It was not pleasant nor pretty. Um, strontium and samarium came along primarily uh, in an era where we didn't really have palliative therapy. And of course, radium much later, uh, a bone-seeking alpha. And when we think about the agents that we use now, they're primarily small, molecule, small, small molecules or monoclonals that are attached to beta or alphas and soon to be perhaps others. So you've heard uh, reference to vision, um, and this was the data from the trial. Um, just to remind everybody, the control arm was sometimes the alternative ARI, but it could have been even steroids in some instances. Um, the data led to the regulatory approval of lutetium. We all know the story of uh, the great lutetium shortage, uh, which is uh, fortunately now been abated, so it is now commercially available. The profile of toxicity is listed here. Uh, Dr. Morgans and I were chatting about our recent experience with several patients. Myelosuppression remains an issue for a subset of patients. Xerostomia is uh, not uncommon. Fortunately, most of the time it's not incredibly bad, but it is, you know, annoying and sometimes grade two-ish in subsets of patients. And Folks sometimes don't complain about it so much. And there obviously is a little bit of um, issue about sort of around the time somebody gets dosed. We don't truly know the late effects of this therapy. Uh, PSMA-4 uh, was presented at ESMO, and this is basically a trial design that unlike vision, which required patients to have received docetaxel, this study basically just said progression following an ARI and the randomization, as you see, was between lutetium and the alternative uh, ARI. For those of you who were in the audience this morning, you heard a little bit of a discussion about um, perhaps uh, that many of us grow tired of the alternative ARI being the control arm because of its limited utility. However, this was an approved uh, design and led to uh, data showing uh, RPFS benefit, and here's the data. And here is the overall survival. Now, the crossover was allowed, uh, uh, I think uh, 86 or so percent, maybe 85 percent of patients were allowed to cross over. So given the fact that there are additional agents that can impact on survival, you know, whether or not we'll ever see an OS benefit from this is uh, unclear. Uh, this study uh, of an alternative agent, uh, PSMA-targeted, uh, was, um, this is the design. It's very similar to PSMA-4. Here's the press release. So uh, needless to say, there uh, is a lot of interest in lutetium PSMA. PSMA has been the holy grail target for decades, and until, frankly, lutetium was developed, it had been uh, very challenging to uh, move the needle. And now that the needle has been moved somewhat, um, every combination known to humankind is now being tested, mostly in Australia. Our Australian colleagues have long been ahead of us here. So there's uh, going to be a lot of data about combinations and whether or not some of this is potentially additive or 
should I even say synergistic? We shall see. And this is just an example of some of the work looking at uh, other combination antibodies. And, you know, one of the challenges that we have with uh, PSMA targeting therapy, as you're all aware, there are enormous number of molecules in the pipeline from next generation immunotherapies, bite molecules, ADCs, many radioisotopes. And the question about sequential targeting PSMA is unanswered at this point. Um, as is the potential role of giving potentially myelosuppressive agents in sequence and chemotherapy. So there are many questions that remain. And these are sort of elucidated here. Again, eligibility to receive lutetium PSMA is based on the study criteria from vision. Um, colleagues of ours who are experts in this area will tell us perhaps the dosing schedule sequence may not be optimized. There may be better ways to do it. There's lots of work to figure that out. Retreatment with uh, PSMA lutetium, uh, not approved, very little data, but this agent is unusual in that it's been available worldwide in many places for a long time. So there is sort of clinical experience with retreatment of this agent that uh, requires prospective validation. So let me just uh, turn and sort of um, ask my colleagues here, um, what your, let's just talk about what your general experience off trial, right? So you've been using the drug commercially for some time. Um, what, what's been your observations about, you know, what kind of patients tend to get treated, their tolerance of therapy, and how do you decide how long to keep treating a patient when they're clinically not bad to start with, meaning they're not symptomatic and they have a rising PSA? during treatment. So let's start with Dr. Smith. Why don't you yeah. tag that last one first? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great set of questions. And, you know, it, we, don't, we don't know who benefit, we don't know in advance who will benefit the most. You know, and the data exists, but hasn't been presented at, as it relates to the treatment effect by baseline PSMA PET expression. So uh, until I'm provided data to dissuade me, otherwise we do prioritize treating patients with the highest PSMA PET expression among the eligible patients. Um, and my sense is that they probably do better than patients who, who are eligible but have low PSMA PET expression. Your experience, it, does it run true that 15% of folks are not PSMA avid per vision? Is that? Yeah, so in vision, so the, the screen failures in vision were either that you were uh, either no lesion above the physiologic uptake of liver, so you're truly PSMA negative, or you have a single PSMA pet negative lesion. So discordance, you could be positive in other sites and one negative lesion, you'd be ineligible. That's about, about our experience. Mostly just low PSMA expressing tumors or, or, or null tumors. Um, the patient that you describe with, you know, you're treating and they have a rising PSA, it's challenging, right? Our intention is to complete therapy because we don't know that stopping it, like much like the historical experience with radium-223, you sort of but there you wouldn't expect to see PSA responses. So here, uh, you know, it's with caution. In the absence of clinical progression, symptomatic progression, we would attempt to complete planned treatment. Yeah, it's, it's just very interesting. So yeah, I, yeah I think the, so in vision, there was 13% um, didn't meet PSMA PET criteria. Interestingly, in PSMA 4, it was about 10%, for whatever that's worth. Um, 
I, I want to see more data on serial testing. I think from talking to most folks, the cycle course of six every six weeks, and even in Splash every eight weeks for infusions, um, you know, I'd like to see it, uh, you know, after three cycles, infusions, uh, more data on a follow-up PSMA PET, um, you know, to better understand uh, that impact as this is a PSMA-targeted therapy. Um, I, I agree with Matthew. If, if the patient's tolerating therapy well, I, and I have only prescribed um, since commercial approval for the indication, um, even though we were part of 4 and Vision, we had a poster uh, today, uh, Zhao Wei's first author. Uh, I'm on it, Dan George. Interesting, if you look at real-world data in the U.S., upwards of 40% of patients now getting um, Pluvicto, the commercial name for lutetium 617 were, had only received one AR pathway drug and had not received taxane therapy. So it's kind of interesting how, you know, people are voting with their feet on this one so far without, you know, an approval, which is, it, but I don't, I don't do that, and I'm not suggesting you should do that, but that's what some of the real-world data has. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting, and I'm glad you guys brought that to the meeting. We're only treating by approval, too. And um, when I do see patients who have a rising PSA, and there actually are some case series, there's no perfect data on this, but there are at least a couple of case series that talk about how you can have a rising PSA for the first few cycles, and then some patients, um, patients do seem to be clinically benefiting. But, you know, a case series is the lowest level of data. And, and of course, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what's happening in your patient. So I have in some settings, especially when there's a borderline clinical benefit, uh, repeated a PSMA PET and tried to understand, get all the information I can to understand whether they're benefiting. You know, ultimately, I think that lutetium PSMA 617 is a fantastic drug and, and it's, it's helped many of my patients. But I also want to be sure or as sure as I can be um, that I'm not exposing the patient to unnecessary uh, hematologic risk. And so I do try to, if I can get that, that extra pet, I try to get it. And then I work with my nuclear medicine doctor to understand, do you think there's a change in a good or a bad direction here? Because I'm a little at a, at a loss. I think they're still at a loss too, right? I mean, uh, that even places that do this a lot haven't validated the utility of PSMA pet assessment. All right, so we're going to move along here. Here's your challenge question. What year was estramustine FDA approved for metastatic prostate cancer? 1984. That is not correct. <laughs> Go ahead and do it. Push. Push. 1981? Yes. Yes. Thank you, Well done. <laughs> have, have any of the three of you prescribed estramustine for I have. prostate cancer? I have, yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. recently. <laughs> Me too. Not recently. It was not amusing. Yeah. No. All right. So, Dr. Smith, take us to the future here. Sure. So, we have a couple of really interesting topics to discuss, sort of, uh, you know, emerging targets and approaches to managing advanced disease. So, first, let me begin uh, with uh, CDK4-6 inhibition. So, this is a critical pathway in cancer. Upstream signaling promotes activation of D-cyclin CDK4 and 6 complex. This complex phosphorylates RB, releasing E2F, uh, leading to transcription of genes required for transition to the S phase. Uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors inhibit phosphorylation of RB, inducing cell cycle arrest, 
and genetic disruption of this pathway is common across multiple cancers, including prostate cancer. Um, CDK4-6 inhibitors have an established role in breast cancer. Three CDK4-6 inhibitors are approved for metastatic breast cancer, palbociclib, ribociclib, and abemocyclib. Abemocyclib is also approved as adjuvant therapy in early-stage breast cancer, uh, and it's worth noting that abemocyclib is a selective and potent ADP-competitive inhibitor of CDK4-6, um, and in contrast to some of the other agents, it's, it's administered on a uh, continuous dosing schedule. There's a, you know, non-clinical studies provide a strong rationale for CDK4-6 inhibition in prostate cancer. AR signaling activates CDK4-6 to sustain prostate cancer cell proliferation. Upregulation of cyclin D1 is a potential mechanism of resistance to AR inhibition. And in non-clinical models, abemocyclib induces cell cycle arrest and prostate cancer growth inhibition. Accordingly, CDK4-6 inhibition may represent an effective therapeutic strategy in prostate cancer, um, and work to evaluate that is ongoing, and the development is in, in many ways very parallel to the prior work that was done in another hormonally sensitive disease, breast cancer, and led to the approvals that I described earlier. This is the design of the phase three cyclone two study. Um, so this has had three, uh, three parts. There was a lead-in part to establish the safety of the combination. Um, there was a sort of randomized phase two testing part. And when that met, pre-specified criteria was expanded to make it a phase three study. So hence these three parts. This was really first line MCRPC. So patients with no prior AR pathway inhibitor were assigned either to abiraterone, PRED plus placebo or abipred plus abemocyclib. Uh, and the primary endpoint for this study is radiographic progression-free survival. Uh, for all the reasons that we talked about before, it's important to know what the role of this combination could be in earlier disease as there's increasing intensification as part of initial management of metastatic prostate cancer. So Cyclone 3 is addressing that question. Cyclone 3 will enroll about 900 patients uh, with high-risk metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, high risk being defined by the criteria shown there, greater than four bone metastases and or visceral metastases. Uh, eligible patients will be randomized to abipred plus abemocyclib or abipred plus placebo, uh, and the primary endpoint will be radiographic progression-free survival with a number of key secondary endpoints, including overall survival. Now, there are other co novel combinations that are being evaluated, and we heard some about one of these uh, in the session this morning. Uh, there is a good rationale for considering combination of TKIs plus checkpoint inhibitors in prostate cancer. Worth noting that, at least in unselected patients, neither of those agents appear to have much activity by themselves, but there is a rationale for combination therapy, and it goes like this. Angiogenesis and evasion of the immune destruction are hallmarks of cancer, supporting rationale for combining veg VEGF TKIs and uh, checkpoint inhibitors. TKI tyrosine kinases are involved in tumor growth and angiogenesis, and certain mutations may be associated with prostate cancer uh, aggressiveness and prognosis. And targeting these kinases may promote an immune permissive tumor environment and enhance responses to tumors that are otherwise relatively resistant to checkpoint inhibition. 
So based on this non-clinical rationale for the combination, and really it's a fairly compelling early data with the combination phase one, two study, um, this led to the design of CONTACT-2. So this is a study that included patients with MCRPC, prior treatment with one and only one uh, AR pathway inhibitor, could have been administered in any number of different settings, but they could only have had one, had to have a good performance status, and, uh, and were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either physician's choice of abirenza, means so the AR pathway inhibitor switch, or uh, CABO at 40 milligrams a day plus a tezolizumab. 1,200 milligrams IV every three weeks with the key uh, or primary endpoints of prime, uh, PFS and OS and key secondary endpoint of uh, overall response rate. So the data was presented uh, in the morning session uh, today, certainly led to a lot of questions and a lively discussion about the data. Uh, this is the uh, PFS by the primary pre-specified analysis by blinded independent central review. Um, the combination CABO-ATEZO was superior to the AR pathway inhibitor switch. The hazard ratio for RPFS was 0.65. It's statistically significant, as you can see there. The median RPFS in the control group was 4.2 months, and in the CABO-ATEZO group was 6.3 months. Um, and it was noted that this PFS benefit was observed across a number of pre-specified subgroups, including patients with liver metastases, prior docetaxel from HSPC, as well as patients with bone metastases. At the time of this presentation, the OS data were immature, although it was said that there was a trend towards better survival in favor of caboatezo. Certainly a lot of discussion at the meeting about this in terms of selection of the control group in this specific population, as well as the clinical importance of this about two-month difference in our PFS. So maybe we'll have time to talk about that in the discussion. And it was, and it was noted by the presenter that this was the first phase three study of a TKI plus checkpoint inhibitor showing uh, substantially improvement in uh, prostate cancer patients. Um, this is the safety data, certainly important consideration um, uh, in this population of patients. Rates of any adverse event uh, and grade three, four adverse events were greater in the Cabo-Atezo group with the most commonly reported treatment AEs, including diarrhea, fatigue, anemia, and hypertension. So sort of what you might expect from the combination of these agents from other uh, diseases. Um, so consideration of that is important in, as we think about the potential use of this combination in prostate cancer with two mechanisms of action and two set, different sets of AE profiles. Uh, there's a greater array of potential side effects that need to be considered. And sort of as a general principle, um, in patients who have toxicities that could be attributable to either drug, the priority ought to be holding the TKI because it is a shorter half-life and you can more quickly ascertain whether or not their symptoms were due to the TKI versus um, their checkpoint inhibitor. And this is sort of based on general guidance for the combination therapy in other settings, including kidney cancer. There are other um, combination approaches that are in development um, and shown here are the, the, some details about the STELLAR trials. Um, so this is, these are trials looking at the TKI zanzalitinib, which is similar target uh, targets to cabozantinib, as um, 
shorter clinical half-life on PK properties for once daily dosing. The stellar trials are looking at that TKI with a couple of different in solid tumors, either with a Tezo or a Velumab or in stellar two um, combination with Nevo or Ipinevo. And then there's a cohort of the Stellar II trial that's specifically looking at prostate cancer. And so we'll learn more. There's more data to come about this combination. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you. So we got a couple of questions from the audience, uh, not directly related to this presentation, but we should catch up. This question is for Dr. Shore. Not that they told us to send it, but I've decided to give it to you. All right. So when would you choose enzalutamide monotherapy versus Enza? in combination with an LHRH agonist based yeah. on your data. Yeah. So I, I think that the, they're both clinical, the outcomes are clinically significant and certainly, you know, uh, bested the, the sort of the classic LHR, LHRH alone. Um, I think really we, we, we presented some data at ESMO this year. Um, I, it's not a perfect uh, drug to maintain sexual function, but, you know, and our questionnaires need to, and we talked about this in our podium today, myself and Bertrand Tombal, is we, we, we can do better in our questionnaireing on, on sexual function. That said, well, the, the, the vehicles that we used and my own personal experience from having done other uh, phase two studies with monotherapy ARPIs, is that patients certainly tend to have better sexual function than if they're on T-suppression. So that would be one patient category. The other one that's very important is, is finding that patient group. And we've all seen these patients that they're just incredibly debilitated from a fatigue and energy standpoint when they have their T-suppressed. I mean, they just cease to, to, to basically function. Uh, there may be some others that already have, you know, severe bone fragility and osteopenia uh, that you might not want to worsen as well. Um, sarcopenia is a really interesting issue. You get this re remarkable adiposity of visceral weight gain. Uh, we're investigating that in the monotherapy arm as well. So this is for Dr. Smith. What is the mechanism of action rationale for PARPs and HRR proficient tumors? Yeah, so I'm not sure I can do it justice without a cartoon, but there is a, there is a reasonable non-clinical non data supporting a role um, for the combination. Uh, and I would say that, you know, the, the signal that we see in the phase three study suggests that it is real. I just think it's modest. Um, so... And it's consistent. It comes back even to you know, the phase, randomized phase two from Noel Clark with Abby Alaprib. The, the phase three data basically recapitulated that perfectly. And I guess you'd say it's consistent with the available non-clinical data suggesting that there is this uh, interaction that AR inhibition basically renders tumors conditionally sensitive to PARP inhibition. So Dr. Morgan's in one minute and 25 seconds... How do you explain radio ligand therapy to your patients? How do you explain what it is and, you know, how, why this is a reasonable therapy for them? Now, one minute and 15 seconds. Yeah, thanks. So um, I usually explain that uh, many of the prostate cancer cells in their body will express a protein called PSMA. Name doesn't matter, but it's essentially a little flag that sits on the cell surface. And when we inject this targeted therapy that 
sort of finds its way through the system, attaches to that little target or that flag on the surface, it's able to dump its really highly potent radioactivity right there. And if we do enough dumping and we get enough activity, we can kill many cells. Can't cure the disease, but hopefully can reduce the disease burden. Thank you. Uh, just um, to warn the audience, because you'll see them sweating, that the last one of these uh, thingies that we're going to do is worth 150 points to break any potential tie. And in case you hadn't noticed this beauty here. I think that looks like something a urologist needs. <laughs> well, that's perhaps he's why he's motivated to do well. All right, here we go. Which of the following from the clinically localized prostate cancer SUO guideline for shared decision-making has grade A evidence? I'm not going to read it. You can read it yourself. <laughs> and if somebody does not answer... Okay, Dr. Moore, push. All right, Dr. Shore, push. I mean, yeah. you know, come on. I am trying to let them win, but they... Uh, I'm going to, I'm it was, it was a lot of reading. I, I just blanked out. I'm going to go with two. That is not correct. Dr. Morgans. One. Similarly, not correct. <laughs> I would like to choose three. <laughs> Mass general. That's also there not correct. <laughs> Mass general. All right. <laughs> And uh, for our last didactic, Dr. Morgans is going to talk to us about how we make all this and put it all together. Yeah. Wonderful. Gosh, I was so thrown by those questions. I thought we were done, but okay. So back to this. So, you know, I think we have all of this data and ultimately we need to put it into our practices. So when we go back to clinic on Monday or Tuesday or whatever day we're in clinic, um, how do we best do that? So as we saw in the last question, shared decision-making, that really bi-directional sharing of medical information and patient preferences and beliefs, needs, and um, goals is really critically important in what we do. And it's the way that we actually get our patients to engage in that decision-making process so that they have trust in us, they have trust in the therapy. And I think in many cases, we expect they may be more adherent, more able to tolerate therapy and also to communicate with us when they have complications about their treatment. Um, it is not always easy to do. It does take time. And I think the other thing that we also have to think about in our clinics is health literacy. So really the patient's ability to take in all of the information that we're trying to share. And really importantly, places like Zero, which as we've heard is an advocacy organization and institutions themselves and other reputable organizations that you can find online, uh, try to produce decision aids, whether they are written, whether they're videos, audio, um, or, or something that can be used in clinic as a, a teaching tool. These are available online, and it's, it's so important that we are using them and really connecting with patients. The other thing that I think is so important here is that the doctor isn't always the only person um, communicating. And our nurse practitioners, our physicians, assistants, our nurses, um, our pharmacists can be really engaged in communicating a lot of this information and, and participating in the shared decision-making process too. So uh, interdisciplinary collaboration, as I said, is, is, a, is a critical part of, of this process. And particularly, at least in my clinic, as we prescribe the oral agents, our pharmacists are so, so critical in re-emphasizing and again and again emphasizing um, some of the specifics around taking medications, ensuring that patients get refills and all of this. 
Um, and it's interesting because a few times a week I'll get a note from our pharmacist saying, I know you talked to this patient. I know this is what you prescribed. The patient actually has more questions or can your nurse call? Can you call? They, they're thinking about this treatment or that treatment perhaps differently. So, so these, this interdisciplinary collaboration can be really critical. Um, I think, as I said, one of the, the important things there too is ensuring the patient feels comfortable and has those access points to communicate around safety and adverse events. Um, make sure that they're getting their refills and have all of their concerns met. Uh, Team-based management is not new to prostate cancer and is one of the ways that I think we uh, are a specialty in oncology that really can do so well and optimize our outcomes for patients. And this is going to include the skills of the urologist, the radiation oncologist, the medical oncologist, but also, as I mentioned before, our nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, pharmacists, physical therapists, dietitians, they, there may be other members in your team, but all of us working together can really provide, I think, the, the best care. And there are multiple opportunities where we can work together to do this. I think, as we talked earlier about cardiovascular risk, this is a, 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 a clear opportunity for us to work not only with our colleagues in our own clinical practice who can help to talk about modifiable risk factors for cardiovascular disease, as we can see here, including blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking cessation, exercise, but we can also engage with the primary care teams as well as cardiologists if patients are already working with them, communicating well that patients are starting on these therapies that may affect these modifiable risk factors. And we really need to engage their, their partnership in trying to address these issues. We can also, of course, talk to our social workers and uh, support systems within our teams and our practices because there are certainly disparities set up by the social determinants of health, whether that's an unstable living environment, income issues, trying to get co-pays that our social work teams, our financial assistance teams can help with. And really, you know, fixing someone's prostate cancer if they don't have a place to stay and they don't have any food. I mean, these are, these are not things that are going to be fixed by us giving them a pill for their cancer. So anything that we can do and the opportunities where we engage with our patients is something that's important, I think, to all of us. You know, another opportunity that we have in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer is to really collaborate around genetic testing. And we have heard about germline and somatic te testing here. We've heard about different ways that we can work on these processes, whether it's through the Promise Prostate Registry, which is a home-based test, whether it's in our clinics with our genetic counselors or rapid testing, um, again, for germline testing, whether it's through tumor testing, ctDNA testing, new metastasis, um, biopsy and, and testing. We have to use our teams to actually make all of this happen. And luckily, particularly when it comes to genetic testing, there are some online resources that I think we can utilize, uh, at least in the U.S., around some of the germline testing companies where they can provide some genetic counseling if patients have alterations, if we don't have those individuals to provide that counseling in our, in our practices. And not every practice can have every member of a multidisciplinary team as would be defined in an ideal environment. But we can find those resources online and they're increasingly available, which I think is also a wonderful, um, a wonderful thing for our, for our community. Um, this is a, an ASCO abstract that of course, Dr. Shore has presented. I think most of the abstracts we've discussed tonight have been written by Dr. Shore. He writes all of them himself, does all of the illustrations himself as well. Um, prints them out, and actually I saw him hanging them on, uh, on Wednesday evening. It was a long night for him, hanging all these abstracts. In any event, um, 
Dr. Shura has done a lot of work in real-world studies, and we're, I think, really grateful for him doing this because these real-world studies are the way that we hold a, a mirror to ourselves, to our practices, and try to understand not just what's happening in my, in my clinic room, but what's actually happening in our community. And what he did was look at a patient population, metastatic, castration-resistant prostate cancer, and did a, a chart review of some de-identified patients from about 500 sites with these patients um, between 2020 and 2021. And he found that only about just under 60% of patients were receiving testing for HRR mutations. And during this time period, of course, we had access to um, therapeutic options that could be helpful for our patients. And certainly their families could be helped if we were doing um, germline testing. Um, and so this is really important that we identify or that he identified this. Um, and about 31.7% of patients had an HRR mutation, um, but only 66.8% of them actually received a PARP inhibitor. So one of the things that we know from our data, from other, uh, other real-world evidence, um, and certainly from our studies, is that patients who have these alterations have more aggressive disease biology. And so not giving them a treatment that we know can be highly effective is, um, is, is not what we want. So thank you for doing the work so that we recognize there's a disparity here. There are probably racial differences if we dig into it. But either way, there is a discrepancy between what we know is right and what should be happening. More testing and then getting patients their, their PARPs, I think, is a really clinically um, unmet need here. Patient advocacy is also very, very important. We've mentioned zero a few times during this discussion tonight. You know, I think as, a, as practicing clinicians, it's important for us to have reputable sites to send our patients to either have access to things like educational materials, but also to potentially engage with other members of the community for support. And Zero is a great place for this. They also have this Zero 360 um, program, which you can see here, which is a financial assistance program and counseling service. So if you don't have those folks in your clinic or if they've hit a wall in terms of identifying resources, this program actually may be able to help identify more resources for your patients with prostate cancer and certainly giving them educational materials and having access to support groups. Um, and there's actually a, a map and a, a search engine where you can find support groups virtual and in-person across the country is, is a really um, beneficial part of that too. One of the other things that we as an oncology community need to do is ensure that we're making uh, offers for our patients to get into clinical trials and particularly emphasizing that this is important for all patients, uh, all races, any geographic location and uh, any health literacy level, um, et cetera. So uh, Zero does advocate for this too. They have a clinical trial search engine and really try to educate patients not only on specific trials, which they can do through that search engine, but on the importance of participating in clinical research so that we have the evidence we need to, um, to help make the decisions that we need to make in clinic. So uh, in the last minute or two, so short answer. So this is another question from the audience. Will AI impact on your clinical practice during your clinical practice lifetime in terms of informing how you take care of patients with prostate cancer? Dr. Smith. Yes. Give us and like a little inkling. Yeah, I, I was about to, I just wanted okay. to make a <laughs> dramatic pause. So I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with the AI digital pathology, like being predictive. So I think that's like a, like a near-term tangible example, or I think like a bigger like picture is like, are our, our EMRs gonna be AI powered such that like they're going to be prompting us with suggestions or like you know that are meaningful um and 
help. I mean, there there could be there could be a good news story in this, in the sense of it can do a lot of work for us. I always envisioned years ago when I was consulted by some at IBM Watson, like you know, what are your unmet needs? I said, what I need at that time is that when I see a new patient, they come in with 300 pages of records. You can just fire it through a scanner, and it can print out a note, a two-page note for me as to what the hell has actually gone on, right? So that's the kind of thing that AI could reasonably do in the future as a sort of first draft of patient encounters and then beyond that, providing specific patient recommendations. How do you think, Dr. Morgan? Sounds like you're replacing fellows. I love it. Um, So very good. Uh, Either way, uh, yes. So um, to Matthew's point about digital pathology, the Artera pathology, digital pathology AI system is actually clinically available. It seems to be reimbursed. Um, We are just setting up the portal. We're going to be using it now. So predictive of whether... um, long or short-term hormonal therapy will be helpful in intermediate risk localized disease. And I'll be ordering it as soon as we get that portal set up. And you have the last word. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you can't be a Ludite anymore. Uh, uh, AI is here. So Artera AI, interesting platform. They were at this meeting multiple times. They now have Medicare approval for their test, and they're actually now in the NCCN guidelines, as what Dr. Morgans was referring to. So we're getting to the uh, award portion of the program. Uh, I know you can't win. All right, and the winner is, I don't, I don't actually know who the winner is. Ah, Dr. Shore. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Zero Prostate Cancer. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YRR860. This educational activity is supported by medical education grants from Astellas and Pfizer Incorporated, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, Lanthius Medical Imaging, and Lilly.